Roberts, and welcome to another cart.ca exclusive podcast. With me today is someone described as, I think you described it of yourself actually, Chris, a self-propelled leader with an entrepreneurial style, end of quote. So yes, it is. Mr. Chris Wilson, Executive Director, CBC Sports and Olympics. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. That sounds unbelievably pretentious that I may have described myself that way. It sounds like uh, something that was demanded of a bio or a resume cover letter. Please don't hold it against me that you somehow your crack research, a job application. That sound, that's what it sounds like. Sounds incredibly pretentious of me. Well, my crack research uh, staff is me. So let's, uh, what, what the heck, let's dig into that a little bit, Chris. Let's see, where was it? A self-propelled leader with an entrepreneurial <laughs> style. You know, a lot of people might you know, say, well, geez, you know, working for a public broadcaster or a public broadcaster bureaucracy, it doesn't kind of mesh with self-propelled leader entrepreneurial style. Um, I'm sure you've got some kind of pushback comment. on A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I actually had a mentor back when I was in the wine business. We'll get to that. And, and running, running my own business and finding it quite stressful, everything that came along. Uh, I had a mentor back in Calgary that told me and reminded me, you can be entrepreneurial in a corporate job. And you, it, the only people, uh, it's not just people that own their own businesses that can be entrepreneurial. And that was a little bit of a light switch for me that I could enjoy the creativity of being an entrepreneur without the risk and the sort of stress that also comes with being uh, your own business and everything that comes along with it. So, you know, I don't regret uh, that part of my life, it taught me a lot. It was really uh, liberating to sort of hear that from someone who had actually had a corporate job, done very well, and had uh, brought a lot of that creative thinking to a corporate job. And so here I find like that served me well. And I'll also point out that the president of CBC Register of Canada, Catherine Tate, comes from private business, was an entrepreneur. Barb Williams came from private private broadcasting. Michelle Bissonnette, who runs Radio Canada, was in you know private world as well. I think people you know I understand the tropes that come with CBC Radio Canada public broadcaster stage traditional, and some of it is true. But um, the leadership, my experience within the company, having only been here three years, is actually quite the opposite in terms of that uh, creative thinking being embraced. And I think we're way more innovative and creative inside the building than people would think from the outside. I'll just add to that and show my age. So back in the day when Pierre Junot was president of CBC Radio Canada, he was criticized a few times about from private broadcasters about being inefficient and effective. So Pierre said, great, we'll do a study, independent. You pick the consultant, Pricewaterhouse, whatever, Ernst Young, whatever you want. And so they did. And it turns out that the uh, consultant's report indicated that CBC Radio Canada was more efficient, more effective than private broadcasting sector. And no one's ever asked that again at the CBC. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, I know there's certain people that would never believe it. But I mean, we do a lot with, you know, relatively for what we do, not that much. So I think people would be surprised at how efficient we are at doing a lot of things. So you mentioned wine. I'm from Prince Edward County. We've got to dig into that. What's your journey? What's your story to get here to this position with CBC Sports? Yeah, it's it's non-traditional, I'll say for sure. Uh, I wasn't in media. I was more of a media fan and I knew enough to be dangerous. I guess it gets back to that entrepreneurial style. I was a high school kid that had a bad attitude about education and uh, was pretty certain when I graduated high school, I never wanted to go to school again. And I didn't. 
And for a long time, I was pretty self-conscious about the fact that I was only a high school graduate. And it's only maybe the last five years where I had uh, the confidence to realize that, you know, that was okay. And that I had now other life experiences that, you know, in my case, maybe make up for formal education. So I have a better attitude about formal education now because I have three kids that I... uh, that I'm trying to mentor into that world. At the time, I wasn't into it. And, you know, I will say that my work career was varied, but I was always open to opportunity is the thing that I tell other young people is you may not work in the field you go to school to, and you just need to have your eyes open. Don't try and make the perfect decision. Make a decision and then be open to opportunity. And I think that's what I was. I was a swim coach as my career for the first 10 years. And those whole 10 years, I loved it. And I thought I was going to be an Olympic swim coach. And then another opportunity came along and I chose that path and it took me in a different way. And, you know, long story short, I did end up in the wine world, uh, owning my own business with a partner in Calgary. It was wildly successful and wildly stressful and wildly hard. And, you know, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Like I said, it was really a great experience for about five years. But my wife was also pregnant with our third child at the time. What I realized was I had a work wife, which was my business partner, and I had a home wife. And I was at the crux of my life where I was only going to be able to keep one of those uh, people. I ended up uh, choosing, of course, the obvious one. That's how I ended up back with Swimming Canada. Was uh, They were looking for someone to help with sponsorship and marketing. And I went back into the sports world, which I was familiar with. Long story short, ended up applying for an opportunity here at CBC. And one thing led to another. And uh, it's now, I would say, that sort of thing that sounds like I'm feeding you a line, but it's uh, it's really a dream job in the end of things. It's not something I would have ever planned for myself 15 years ago, but being a fan of CBC my whole life and growing up watching the Olympics and being a swimmer myself and being from that Olympic sport world, to be here now and being able to lead such an incredible group of talented people and do what we do for the country is incredible. Well, let's talk about the Olympics. Uh, that is our focus today, the Summer and Winter Olympics, the 2020-2020 Summer Tokyo Olympics, which were postponed to July 23rd through August 8th, 2021. CBC Radio Canada was the Canadian rights holder, and I got the sense from reading the materials that you kind of welcomed the Tokyo postponement. Uh, there was a lot going on at the time. I think you're somewhere in the press quoted as saying it gave you the certainty to, you know, for planning purposes. And so tell us a bit about all that and how that felt with all that political stuff going on and the health stuff going on. I think it was in March of 2020, the Japanese Olympic Committee saying we're going to go ahead. The Canadian Olympic Committee saying we're not going to send anybody. The IOC saying I don't know what's going on. How was that for you? It was wild. And it seems like a generation ago, to be honest, it seems so long ago. And, you know, at that point, it was so early in the pandemic, I can easily put myself back there. And the level of uncertainty now seems a little quaint now that we've lived through so much of the pandemic. At that time, it was remarkably stressful because none of us really knew what was ahead of us at that moment. So you look back now and, you know, some of the things we were unsure about seem kind of laughable, but it was every day there was new news coming out. Every day there was uh, con- conflicting stories from different stakeholders like you just uh, outlined. And we were doing our best to stay in touch with our partners at the IOC and with the COC. And so at the end, 
when the Japanese government ended up ultimately saying we're going to postpone and giving us that certainty, it was welcome because we had had weeks of this uncertainty and trying to plan, are we going, are we changing our production model, is the Canadian team going, although, you know, we never really thought that was a... Uh, you know, a legitimate thing that was going to happen. The Canadian Olympic Committee making that statement was a huge show of leadership, but we kind of knew at that point that it was probably going to be postponed. But it, it was remarkably uncertain times, and getting that extra year of planning, I think it did benefit us ultimately. Um, gave us time to breathe, gave us time to really reflect on our production model. You know, me as a new leader gave me time to learn a little more about what our plans were and dive into them in a deeper way. And I know we'll talk about Beijing later. What we didn't realize was how much it was going to impact Beijing to have Tokyo pushed a year in advance or a year later. You mentioned the Canadian team perhaps not showing up in Tokyo. Did you have contingencies for that? We didn't really feel the need for too much of a contingency because I think we felt at that time that now the tidal wave of support for that position was coming and there, there was virtually no way that they would be able to hold the games uh, with so many countries saying they were not coming even if they were held. Had had there been no other voice for two more weeks, we might have started plan for it. But by then I can thinking, yeah, it's, it's not happening. We need to waste time. So let's talk a bit about nuts and bolts. What were... What were the sort of specific or practical Tokyo planning considerations with regard to broadcast, streaming, sponsorship and advertising buys, uh, scheduling other world championships, amateur sports events that you made a commitment to, uh, sorting out your own sports calendar on various platforms? It couldn't have been very easy in the midst of all of this and the postponement. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Again, that, that level of uncertainty, I, I think, you know, back in... March through July or that whole time period, you know, the the pandemic was so new. I think we were all naively still thinking at that time, well, two more weeks and two more weeks, you know, and if you think back, nobody was thinking we had two years of, of that in front of us. So everything just started being canceled in two week increments. In terms of the other sporting events, had they all stayed, it would have been a big problem for us, but everything got canceled. It's just they weren't all canceled at once. Every two weeks, we would get a new lineup of that's gone, that's gone, that's Got gone. Yeah. And so the schedule sort of took care of itself in that regard because literally everything canceled. And we ended up having to come up with a contingency of what are we going to put on the air because all of our live sport has now disappeared in the space of you know, a month. So we ended up you know, going into our incredible archives and creating these shows that ended up being quite popular in the early days of the pandemic of Olympic recap shows with different themes. And our team did an incredible job of that. You know, I will give Chris Irwin, our executive producer, uh, a lot of credit here. He was, I, I think, one of the very first broadcasters to say, you know, we could wait and see what Tokyo 2021 looks like before we make some of these production decisions. It's going to just add stress to the next 12 months if we're just waiting. So he was really the first one to say, we need to change our production model now and just live with whatever you know the state of the world is when we get to Tokyo. And of course, it turned out that everybody did what we did. But he was the first to say, let's pull back commentators. Let's reduce our footprint and make the decision now. And that all happened, I think, within a month or two of the postponement. We had made that bold decision 
to radically change our production model for a year down the road. Pandemic might have been over. And at that point, uh, as it turned out, it wasn't over. And most broadcasters ended up at the last minute doing what we had done a year in advance. Good. So good credit uh, to our production team that was willing to recognize that that year of planning wouldn't have been a benefit if we just waited to see what the state of it was. And what about your partners? You had a whack of partners. Were they okay in terms of managing through that? Yeah, our sales team and our marketing team did an incredible job with the partners. And I will say Olympic partners, especially those, not just, but especially those that are partners with the Olympic movement, be it through the IOC or the Canadian Olympic Committee, they're really in it for the right reasons. Of course, they want you know, the benefit of the rings and they're looking for audience, but they're also in it for, I believe, the right reasons around the athletes and the movement itself and what it they believe in what it does for the country. All the contracts that were ready for 2020 had to be rewritten and our sales and marketing team met with all of them and they rewrote every single one. Every one of those partners, I believe there was around 23, 24 of them rewrote their contracts and there was very little change and with any of them most of them had no change so they just said no we understand we're in it was a lot more administrative work for our sales and marketing team but they just did an incredible job of maintaining uh, that group of partners and you know if you if you remember back the economy at the time was tanking and mm. some of these industries uh, were tanking and they still kept their commitments so it really shows the strength of the uh, the partnership that those people bring. I'm a big believer in big events turn on small detail. And uh, I'm just wondering about the little things, uh, hotel block bookings, uh, travel arrangements, vendor bookings, updating your pre-Olympic content. Was that all relatively easy in the end as you describe it? Or I guess it would have been easy in a non-pandemic time other than managing it. In a pandemic time with shifting schedules or the pandemic, you must have been chewing Advil by the bottle. Well, this is where I'm going to come clean and say, like, I am a self-admitted big picture person that doesn't get into the small details, partly because I'm just I don't bring value to the minutia. I know that about myself and our logistics team uh, at CBC and Regio Canada on the Olympics are incredible. And the amount of work that they had to do rebooking Tokyo and then managing the Beijing logistics at the same time, because while we were in the middle of Tokyo, they were planning Beijing. We were talking about Beijing hotel bookings while we were in Tokyo. It was a monumental task that we had to pull off with our logistics team. And I can take zero zero credit but pass it all on to them because honestly the olympics are an incredible logistical complex machine without any of those complications it is still an incredible complex and confusing logistical machine if you add the fact that you have to rebook every hotel and rebook every airline and do it twice like they had to do for tokyo and oh by the way start planning beijing under conditions you have no idea what you're going into the fact that we did it and we got everybody there safely and back home safely is just a total credit to our logistical team. And uh, yeah, they they were amazing throughout. Did you get involved in the challenge of marketing 2020 Olympic Games and Paralympic Games, but actually holding them in 2021? Uh, the branding issue must have been a little, at least for a moment in time, must have been a bit of a head scratcher. And you're 
marketing agencies might have been a little bit confused. Were you anything there? Well, that ultimately comes from the IOC. So you know, on the surface, there's a little communicating because that's a very good question that partners would have asked or, uh, you know, marketing groups might have asked. But uh, the IOC pretty early on came out and said, we're not changing the name of the event. The official name is Tokyo 2020. And so that actually took a lot of the guesswork out of it for us. As the rights holder, you know, we can only market what marks they give us to market. And that's the one they gave us. So Tokyo 2021 was actually never really on the table. You know, I think in the end it, it worked out. It was sort of a constant reminder of the postponement. And it was strange. But uh, in terms of us getting involved, we didn't really have to because it was the IOC's decision to make. And they made it quite early. So when the dust settled, I guess that would have been August 8th, 2021, CBC Radio Canada's. But the digital numbers seem pretty darn impressive. I think it was your coverage reached a record number of, what was it, 44 million video views on digital platforms. Uh, tell us a bit about digital services in that switch. I, I know I know your president and CEO, Catherine Tate, bet pretty heavy on digital transformation. So she must have been pretty pleased, which is always a good thing for the boss. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, uh, I mean, Tokyo was, I would say, really successful. The first of our games, we did the team, the, the athletes did incredibly well. That drove audience, uh, not just to digital, but also uh, to linear. But on the digital side, you know, it's safe to say that we saw, I kept saying our future isn't actually our future, it's now. And I think for everyone in the company, when we saw the numbers rolling in, uh, especially on digital, and especially on CBC Gem, and especially the number of connected TVs that were watching CBC Gem, we all kind of realized, wow, the intensity of this event has sort of shown us our future that isn't actually three years down the road, it's now. And it accelerated a, a lot of our thinking, how and when this transition would happen. And um, I know a lot of people feel, myself included, and, and my boss, Sally Cato, who um, runs the entertainment division for CBC, felt like the Olympics ended up being just a crucial awareness campaign for CBC Gem that really introduced this strong service to Canadians that didn't know it was there. And the Olympics brought them in and hopefully made them aware, like, wow, this is actually an incredible free service that I can access pretty much on any device and uh, it really was a game changer for cbc gem i hate that term but it was in this case it was an awareness campaign we couldn't have purchased um any so, other way so what about old-fashioned linear broadcasting numbers so how did that turn out for cbc Radio canada they were very strong. The Tokyo numbers, excellent. We had a bit of experience from um, from Pyeongchang in 2018 having the overnight games and companies' uh, campaign was wake up with CBC or wake up, uh, you know, because everything was happening overnight and you wake up early in the morning and live sport is on. So we had we had experience with that, which I think helped. I mean, performance of the athletes does help a lot. Nobody should forget that. And the fact that our swimming team got out of the gates right away with medals almost every day, um, you know, people like Penny Alexiak and Maggie McNeil were, were winning medals uh, and winning, you know, gold medals early in the games just snaps people to attention immediately that throughout uh, those games, Canadian athletes are now you know, expecting to be on the podium in summer events, which wasn't always the case. 
I think we're starting to see a little bit of a change in, you know, the Winter Olympics are still a big deal, but the Summer Olympics everywhere else in the world are actually the much bigger deal. And for Canadian athletes now who are winning medals, if you remember back through the 90s and the early 2000s, we were struggling to win medals. You might get to day seven or eight and there's barely a medal. Well, summer also has different sports with totally uh, different approaches. I mean, Winter Olympics is a number of sports done many, many different ways. Summer Olympics are a whole whack of sports. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you can't even compare the size, but the the Summer Olympics have so many different sports and Canada qualified so many teams. You know, we had our women's soccer team in, we had water polo teams, we had field hockey teams, like volleyball teams. Qualifying in those team sports is hard. Mm -hmm. And I believe we had six or seven, which was the most we'd ever had. So that helped as well. And so all of it sort of plus being in the pandemic and people were outside at the cottage, but they could watch it on digital. All that uh, led to just it just hit at the perfect moment. And we had the experience of what we all believe the Olympics should do, which is bring the country together. The numbers back that up. I just want to come back to those numbers on the old-fashioned television side. I think it was 28 million Canadians and 72 or 74% of Canadians watched on regular old television. Mm-hmm. But that involved partnerships or some kind of relationship with the Réseau des Sports, TSN, uh, Sportsnet. Just t- tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky to have a number of sub-licensed partners with linear sport channels. That I call them the privateers. The privateers, sure. Yeah, no, we have great partnerships with all of them. Um, and, you know, obviously... As, as the world changes, maybe people relied slightly less on the sport channels because the streaming options are now so, you know, uh, plentiful. But for us to be able to have five linear channels showing people, you know, pretty much every sport uh, under the sun, at least for a portion of time and, and show almost every Canadian performance, it's a real luxury for the country, I think. We couldn't have done that without the partners and the reach does include does include that, I believe, yeah. So take your CBC hat off just for two minutes. What were your real highlights from, from Tokyo? Like, really got your juices going. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't hide the fact that I was a swimmer and I worked for Swimming Canada. So <laughs> being at the pool almost every, because I was fortunate enough to actually go and watch, that was certainly a highlight. You know, just, I had never been to a Summer Olympics before. So you know, for me to be there with our incredible group on the ground and see them in action. And then I did come back and see our team in Toronto and Montreal both in action as well. That I think was my highlight because, you know, I'm I'm not from broadcasting, but the group of professionals here, they didn't need me for the broadcasting experience. There's a million people here that have all of that experience. So just seeing them do what they do so well and putting a product on the air that we were so proud of, that was the highlight for sure. Well, one of them for me was also watching the Canadian women's beach volleyball team beat the Americans, but I'm not sure I should be proud of that. <laughs> what, what of course you should. Of okay, I'm proud. I'm proud of it. Off the top. Of course you should. But, no, uh, absolutely. What went on? There was a bit of a controversy. Americans were yelling at their television sets. What, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I was actually at that game. I was there. and um, Oh, yeah, I think I saw you there. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was only about six of us in the stands, so... But I was there, and ultimately what happened was the uh, the video board operator put up the wrong graphic. So after the challenge, he put up the wrong graphic, 
And uh, the ref had to come over and say, no, no, it wasn't overturned. It was upheld or whatever it was. So when they switched it, that's when the players went crazy. Yeah. But it was it was satisfying. But I was fist, fist bump. I'm so com- proud. Complete, completely <laughs> legit. Completely legit. Yeah. You've talked about a lot of things you had. There were also kind of the usual controversy. You know, there's always the bribery, corruption thing. Um, but what about, there was other talk about hot weather, uh, air conditioning, uh, water quality for swimmers. I think even asbestos. I think they ran into a tropical storm, which impacted sports like, I don't know, triathlon, archery. Certainly surfing would have had a challenge. There was even the British officials who claimed that the Russian GRU military uh, folks were, you know, sort of involved as well. I mean, it sounds like a long list, but did any of that impact you or CBC Radio Canada's work? Well, we're going to get into talking about Beijing where the, the answer is going to shift a little bit. But for Tokyo, it was really wet. It yeah. was really weather. The heat there in the summertime is intense and the level of humidity is crazy. And we have, you know, camera people and crews that are out there, you know, covering events in this heat. And our number one challenge was how do we make sure COVID aside, you know, keeping those safety measures in place, how do we also make sure that they are hydrated, shaded, uh, you know, cool and not having heat stroke? Because, I mean, it was in some of these venues where there wasn't a breeze. Oh, my gosh, the heat was intense. Give, give me a sense. Certainly feeling Humidex wise into the mid 40s, without a doubt. You know, it was it was in the, the 33, 34 Celsius range. But with the humidity, it was feeling much warmer than that. And if you got into that beach volleyball venue we talked about, which was on the water, but it was a four-sided stadium, so there was no breeze. It was incredible how hot it was. And I know the athletics venue was the same thing. The women's soccer uh, gold medal game, if you remember, they had to change the time because it was going to be going off in extreme heat. So they ended up moving it uh, to later at night, which put it early in the morning in North America. Uh, the heat was by far the, the number one thing. And I think just environmentally, it will be something with global warming that, yeah. uh, you know, the IOC really has to take seriously because you mentioned the water temperature. I mean, these events like triathlon or open water swimming that require long distance swims in open water venues or, or even if they're rowing basins. I mean, if it's that hot, it's hard to keep the water cool enough. So, you know, environment is going to be a big issue in the Winter Olympics, having places that have enough ice and snow. In the summer, it's the heat. And how do you pick a place that can still run some of these events where it's not a safety hazard for the athletes? Well, let's 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 go to China then. Let's go to Beijing. The 2022 Winter Olympics, they took place between February 4th and 20th, 2022. I think you've spoken a little bit to it. What was it like broadcasting the Beijing game so soon after the Tokyo. There was a certain muscle memory that we had for Beijing. I heard this from a lot of our staff that because it came six months or five and a half months after Tokyo, it was pretty easy to pick up tools and just go again. And that was unusual because we had most of the same people doing many of the same jobs in the same time zone in the so it was the same shifts and so kind of a plus it that part was a benefit you didn't have to onboard people in the same way ad inserters knew how to insert the ads because they had just done it that same applies to pretty much every job that we had so that was a benefit at the same time i think for those that were working back in toronto and montreal it's overnight it's long shifts 
we were hoping that Beijing wouldn't have the same COVID restrictions, but Omicron had hit. So the COVID restrictions were actually more intense than what we had experienced for Tokyo. We were not expecting that, but that just added to the level of sort of stress. Beijing was hard, I will say, especially for those that were back in Toronto and Montreal because of the time zone. For those people that went to Beijing, the stress was all before we left. What's it going to be like when we get over there? I can't test positive before we go or else I won't be able to go. Once I get there, I got to test every single day. Like Mm. the anxiety of going and the amount of paperwork and logistics to get there was really tough. But once you got there, it felt marginally like an Olympics. And you were in the bubble. It was very well organized. It was very safe. And they had no transmission in the bubble. Mm. And you're up during the day. But for our teams at home, because I did come home again and spend the last weekend with our team here, I mean, it was hard. Two Olympics in six months. It felt a bit like Groundhog Day, I think, for the team behind the the camera. Uh, But they still did an incredible job pulling it off. But I, I... I have to say it was it was hard on the. We've talked a bit already about numbers, but I don't think we've talked about Beijing numbers. So, uh, the Globe and Mail ran a story maybe halfway through the Olympics, I think, saying that CBC ratings for the Winter Olympics, the Beijing Olympics, were falling short. That was the story. They claimed that it was because Canadians were somewhat ambivalent about the political situation. Uh, some numbers used were primetime viewership down 22%, uh, down 48% from the last Winter Games in Korea, down 25% from, uh, I think it was your own CBC sales department projections. So what's your perspective on that? What, what was going on there? Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, first of all, I, I have to start by saying the numbers were still very strong, but... They were off what we had hoped, no question. Can't dance around that. Comparing them to Pyeongchang, I reject that, and I did with the Globe and Mail as well, because the landscape, uh, as you would know, of linear television watchers in Canada in four years has changed so dramatically. We are losing cable subscribers and, and regular television watchers, I think, faster than most countries in sort of the Western world uh, at about 10 or 12% a year. So comparing to Pyeongchang was something we never did. We certainly had hopes that the numbers would be much closer to Tokyo, without question, because that had just happened. You know, in a lot of our planning, we had hoped, well, you know, it's going to be winter, people are inside more. It turned out we were still in a pandemic, so, you know, and people will be excited to, to sort of have the winter games. It's not that they weren't, because like I said, the numbers were still really good. However, I could list 20 things, which I won't, but, you know, that conspired, I think. NHL schedules. I mean, the NHL players. NBA regular season. Not going to the Olympics and instead playing a full schedule where they were trying to jam as many games in during that time. uh, That certainly doesn't help. Having the other sports going doesn't help. To be honest, we underestimated how, for some Canadians, the fact that China was hosting these games was off-putting. And there were some people that made a statement by not wanting to watch, even though they, we, we had a lot of comments. I support our athletes, but I won't watch because China's the host. So there was some of that. The convoy in Ottawa ended up being a huge political story, which, you know, I Good was point. in Beijing for, but, you know, we were following it from there, but we didn't feel it like people here felt it. That swallowed up a ton of energy and just sort of changed what people were thinking about. So, 
You know, there's a whole list of things. The fact that there was three games overnight in a row from Asia, Pyeongchang, Tokyo, um, Beijing, they just had it. You know, another one where you got to get up early or stay up late. Like, I just think there's a whole bunch of things and it's not excuses, but it certainly, I think, all added up to, you know, a little less buzz leading in for sure. I think people were, it took them by surprise that we just finished Tokyo. There's another Olympics already. And even still, like I say, like when the Canadian women won gold, is near 3 million people tuned yeah. in to watch uh, those women uh, win that incredible hockey game. So the numbers were still strong, but I'd be lying if I said we weren't a little disappointed with some of those. Well, let's go to an all-in-out good news story then. Let's go to, uh, you mentioned CBC Gem. I think you had a huge growth on your digital platforms like CBC Gem. I think they were up 48% or so from Tokyo a few months earlier. So that's, is that, if that's accurate, that's we, great. We grew from Tokyo. So unlike the linear television is a little off from Tokyo, uh, the digital did grow. And I think a, a good chunk of that credit goes to our entire digital operations team here that learned so much from Tokyo that they worked hard to enhance our experience uh, on GEM and on our app and on our website uh, they learned about audience behavior a little more so they could sort of lower the barrier to entry on all those platforms, not from a cost perspective, but from a UX perspective. They just knew how to pull certain levers to make things easier. And our engagement numbers were off the charts. People were spending an hour and 40 minutes on some of the platforms with us per day. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is is through Gem for sure. People were finding it and sticking with it for hours and hours and hours. And that was an average. So there's people yeah. spending five, six hours with us on those platforms. So digital was still a tremendous success story. I got a big kick out of your thing on TikTok. That was pretty, that was great. Where you said TikTok was wildly successful. Was that, was your, uh, your TikToking, was that a plan or is that a personal whim? Well, no, no. I mean, our we have a very creative, young group of people that work on our social team and our digital team. And they only started our TikTok account leading into Tokyo. And it did well there. But they again, they learned from it. And because Beijing was right on the heels of Tokyo, they were able to make some adjustments. And the great thing about our TikTok account, um, and the reason I called it Wildly Successful, was you know, okay, we had a little over 2 million video views and it turned out to be more of a referral source than we expected. The ma- the vast majority of people that we're reaching through TikTok are 13 to 18 years old. I mean, those are people that clearly are not watching CBC on other methods. So for us to be introduced to 13 to 18 year old Canadians from a sports perspective and hopefully, you know, make them aware of our uh, of our content and make them aware of what we do that they might find interesting and relevant. Yeah. That's phenomenal for Very us. Very cool. Uh, maybe this is getting to somewhat the meat in the sandwich part when it comes to the China Olympics. Uh, a lot to cope with in Beijing, I would imagine. There was the diplomatic boycott. Of course, we had COVID again. There were accusations of sports washing, which is a new term to me, but sports washing. There was the Taiwan-Hong Kong politics. There were human rights abuses, uh, Tibetans and Uyghurs. How did these realities figure in your Beijing planning and coverage? I mean, this is one of the incredible benefits of of being a world-class journalistic organization. You know, we have no shortage of experienced people to help us 
plan how we would fully cover an event like this. So on the sports side, we know that we can cover that. And the team that I run understands how to do that and bring those stories of Canadian athletes, which we really believe. If the Canadian athletes are there competing, you know, there's people saying CBC should not be covering these Olympics. My point is always these athletes have worked their entire lives to get to this moment. And if they're wearing the Canadian flag and they're there representing our country, we have an obligation to be there to cover them and tell their stories back to the country. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we are there ignoring all these other issues that you've outlined and asking that question. And we had Adrian Arsenault and our entire CBC News organization represented there in Beijing with an incredible group of hard-hitting journalists that were there to cover the entire Olympic experience. Now, they were not allowed outside the bubble. They were not allowed to out onto the streets of Beijing to uh, talk to regular Chinese people like they may have done in other circumstances to be able to cover the event in the way that they would have in the past. We take it very seriously being sort of the most trusted media brand in the country. When you have, uh, again, I'll just say Adrian Arsenault, along with a lot of other journalists and incredible producers there, you know that the story will be told accurately, truthfully, and straight down the line, and no punches will be pulled at any moment. In fact, during the opening ceremonies, I remember watching it. The main cut that comes from Olympic Broadcast Services, when Hong Kong came out as a delegation, they cut to Xi Jinping. And Adrian, in the moment, called it out and said, isn't that interesting that they've decided to make that editorial choice? And for you at home, this is not a CBC decision. We didn't make that choice. That's the IOC and OBS. And I just thought, this is exactly why we have both the sports people there who do such a great job covering sports and our news team there to make sure that we can cover this politically sensitive and important story and make sure that the Canadian athletes get the coverage they deserve. That's important for people to understand, Chris, because we were talking about social media and digital platforms, but there were references to things like the genocide Olympics and other stuff, which, you know, cringeworthy, but, you know, it's, it's good that you have said what you just said. So thank you for that. So a little bit more nuts and bolts. Did you send fewer reporters to China? Fewer people? We sent fewer people. Yes, absolutely. Put Beijing production through the lens of who is absolutely essential to be on the ground for us to be able to do what we believe is what we have to be able to do. We brought home all of our play-by-play and uh, sport commentators. So that was home here in Toronto, Montreal? They did that all in Toronto and Montreal. Green screen technology. Well, they were just calling from tube, they call it, but you know, they were, they had voice, voice booths here. So we didn't have them as an example. Where we didn't really cut was in our field crews because we felt it was really important to have reporters and these roving crews, we call them, that could go to the different venues and be in the mix zones and capture the post-event comments from Canadian athletes. And we sent a few less uh, than we would have liked in the end uh, because of some of the COVID restrictions. And But in the end, I don't think we missed much. We had people on the ground that we could assign to all the different venue areas to make sure that when a big Canadian story happened, 
There was a CBC or Regio Canada reporter there to capture the reaction, talk to the athlete, talk to, you know, get a, give Canadians a sense of what it was like to be there. That to us was really important, but we did send, I will say, uh, you know, if you compare it to Pyeongchang, which was a pre COVID Olympics, we probably sent about a third, the number of people, a little more than a third, the number of travelers overall, you know, in the end, it's not necessarily the model we want to use going forward, but we proved a lot to ourselves what we could do with less. We haven't touched much on the Paralympics. What was the arrange? What were the arrangements for Paralympics? So the Paralympics, Tokyo and Beijing. Yeah, both. I mean, we have a relationship, Paralympic relationship we have is a little bit different. The Olympics, we are the rights holder. And with the Paralympics, the Canadian Paralympic Committee is actually the rights holder. And we're a sub-licensee. So we work with them and they've put together a great consortium of uh, media outlets that, of which we're the sort of the, the lead media outlet. But there are other media companies involved with that. And so we work with them on the coverage plan. It's obviously a lot smaller just because there's less athletes, less venues. It's it's just a smaller footprint that it takes. But I will say that our coverage um, of Tokyo and Beijing Paralympics, our crew has really raised the bar on what we're doing as the public broadcaster. I'm excited to start now having seen it twice myself. I'm excited to start the plans for Paris about what we can do because I think uh, you know the commitment level is extremely high. It may be smaller, but when you watch it, other than there's less hours of it, you wouldn't really know that it's smaller. And that's the point is really that, you know, we didn't, there's not enough content to be on the hour or to be on the air 23 hours a day. But when we are on, the shows look great. They have the same sort of incredible music and graphics and big game feel. And we have reporters on the ground that are capturing interviews. So it is the way it should be, in my opinion. And just it's the sheer size that's really the only difference. All right. You mentioned uh, women's hockey, gold, good. Other highlights? The women's hockey team, I will say, was extremely fun to watch. And, uh, I, I will say not that this is any great Nostradamus moment, but when I watched them play their first game, I was like, this team is going to win because they're dancing on the bench. They were chirping at each other and because the arena's empty you could you could hear pretty much everything they were having so much fun together and even when they played the u.s if you looked over at their benches the canadian team stood the whole time they never even used the bench to sit down they were up they were into it the entire time and they were just having a blast you could tell the american team was much more serious and i think a large part of that is you know their captains are quite serious too perhaps but i wasn't surprised when they won because they just looked like they were impossible to so that that was fun and i will say i went to my first ever short track speed skating event and that is crazy (laughs) especially the relay which is like roller derby where there there's so many skaters packed into a tiny little area and they just slip in and push each other from behind and that was that was uh, shocking to me how much I enjoyed that and how exciting I found that. Well, it's, it's nice that you say the women's hockey team was having fun. I think that's what Martin St. Louis is doing with the Habs. They're having fun and they're winning games. It's, it's nice to see. It makes a difference. Yeah, it makes a difference. All right, back to the Olympics and Paralympics. What did you learn? There were like four, five, six, 28 things that you learned from, from Beijing and Tokyo that 
uh, are going to help us out and help CBC Radio Canada out in terms of changes or adjustments or tweaks in terms of Paris 2024? Yeah, I mean, I think like I referred, we're already planning. You said, yeah, yeah. we're we're starting it. Yeah. yeah, which kind of sad. You know, like we shouldn't have to start, but we are starting. I think the main thing getting behind the scenes is we we did realize that we can have a smaller footprint. Now, like I said, we're not saying that what we did in Tokyo and Beijing is the way we'll always do it exactly. But I think we pushed ourselves on the remote production and the fact we can have perhaps fewer people in country. What does that mean in terms of numbers? I don't know yet in terms of going forward, but I mean, you know, we had 115 people in Beijing. We will clearly have more than that in Paris, but I don't know that we'll ever go back to the past, you know, 250 to 300, something in that range. I think it'll be in the middle somewhere. Those roving crews and being able to make sure that you can tell the stories from the ground and give Canadians a sense of what it's like, that's super important. Being able to gather athlete reactions, that's super important. And the Paris games, I will just say, like, the way they've set it up as an urban games and they're using so many of their iconic landmarks and locations as Olympic venues, it is going to be visually stunning. So we want to make sure that we can capture that. Uh, You know, on the partnership side, our sales and marketing team just did an amazing job on Tokyo and Beijing. They kind of inherited the plan that they brought to Tokyo and Beijing. So I'm excited to see what they can dream up now that they've lived two Olympics in a short amount of time and sort of how we can think differently about working with our partners maybe not just over a 17-day crazy short period, but opening that window a bit and offering other things that um, maybe extend the life of a partnership campaign with us. Paris is a beautiful city. Sure is. Yeah. I guess there's the follow the money question here too. When you secure Canadian rights for CBC Radio Canada, what does it actually cost the CBC? What does the IOC charge? How does that money relationship work? And And where does the money go? Well, the numbers are confidential for a whole bunch of reasons, so I won't get into actual numbers. I used to to negotiate FIFA rights, so I understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, I mean, there's a couple parts to your question. The IOC will tell you 90% of gets redistributed to sport, and they take 10% for operations. So I haven't done the auditing on it, but they, they talk about those numbers all the time. You know, I have no reason to doubt that that's not the case because they do fund all of the international sport federations around the world to a degree and a lot of development sport programs in developing nations around the world. Of course, they bring a lot in, but they have a lot to support. In terms of where the money goes, you know, that's where it goes. Uh, on our side, even though, you know, we don't share the actual numbers, I will say that when it when it's all done and when we've paid the IOC for the rights and we have, you know, brought on partners to help pay for production, it's a it's a good investment for CBC Radio Canada and and for Canadians. Another money question, perhaps. Uh, there's there's a lot of talk about the idea of permanent venues for the Olympic Games. Uh, Rio de Janeiro in 2016 cost over 13 billion US, I'm told, and helped produce 3.6 million tons of CO2 for a country who still has a large number of slum favelas that I've seen myself. Russia's Sochi Games, uh, Russia's Sochi Games, I think was a record breaker, 51 uh, billion in 2014. And now there's, I'm not sure to be 
optimistic or nervous about talk in, in Vancouver Whistler? Where I guess they had the 2010 games there. And indigenous uh, nations being interested in future Winter uh, Olympic Games and maybe even securing a permanent Winter Games venue in, in British Columbia. What do you think about the idea of permanent sites for games? We're going back to Greece, maybe. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't necessarily, and obviously I'm speaking uh, as the head of CBC Regio Canada Olympics, but this is also sort of a life, uh, lifelong Olympics involved person um, also that talks about this. I think the IOC deserved a lot of the crap they took around how games were awarded in the past. And, you know, the IOC deserves a lot of the critique it gets in a lot of different areas. But the one area where I will uh, take up for them a bit is that since Beijing was awarded, they have made some pretty radical changes to how they award games and what they value in awarding those. They changed the process where it was no longer this sort of cloak and dagger, sealed envelopes, anonymous voting. Kids uh, getting into private school. Exactly. I mean, they changed all of that where now they award them when they have a bid that makes sense. And if you remember back to Paris and Los Angeles, they had two great bids and they brokered a deal where they gave one to each and there was not even really a set time. They just now say, when well, we have a deal that makes sense, we'll strike it, we'll put it there. Now, if you look at the next run of cities, we got Paris, we got Milan, Italy, we got Los Angeles, we have potentially Vancouver 2030, or else the other cities in the running are like Barcelona or Sapporo, Japan. So, and then we have Brisbane, Australia. So that's a pretty radical difference from what, you know, having Sochi, Pyeongchang, Beijing. So I believe they've sort of cracked the code a little bit on the hosting side. I do think that the idea of having some sites return to, uh, I mean, if they do go back to Vancouver in 2030, they'll be using almost all the same venues. And those life cycles, you know, 20 years later, they could be renewed and probably be good in another 20 years. So do I think that Olympics should be in the same place every time? No, absolutely not. 100% not. But could you go back to a Vancouver every 20 years? Totally. You could. Right. Okay. And I think something like that would be great. That makes some sense. We're getting close to the last question, the penultimate question. We're, we're experiencing and the world is living through a, I guess it's a terrifying moment with the war in Ukraine. It's a brutal war and some sports federations, maybe maybe it's most sports federations, but certainly some sports federations and leagues and associations are asserting bans on Russian and I think in some cases Belarusian athletes and, and leagues and that sort of thing, sports uh, teams. World Cup, I think, Russia's out. Is Belarus out of the World Cup? What, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, any personal opinions on that relationship between politics and sports? Uh, well, I do have personal opinions on like on Russia and their participation in sport. In 2014, when they ran what turned out to be the most systematic state-run doping anyone had seen since the mid-70s in the East Germans, uh, they got a slap on the wrist and not even that. I mean, the punishment that was doled out to them, you know, quote-unquote punishment of not being able to compete under their flag and, you know, being called the Russian Olympic Committee instead of Russia. Anyone could see that that was just complete hogwash. I think now the world is seeing 
not just on the sports side, but in a lot of ways that they just didn't send the right message when they just sort of placated and thought it would go away. So I think that has now clearly come home to roost and I'm personally glad to see them being punished for their invasion uh, invasion into Ukraine, obviously. But from just purely a sport perspective, you know, if you're going to have rules against cheating, you have to be able to enforce those rules. And clearly the international sport community valued money over punishing them and gave a lot of high profile international events to be hosted in Russia and not just Russia, other places around the world that constantly host international events because they're willing to pay for them. And I think hopefully this will be a bit of an awakening that you need to value a few things uh, beyond just the money that comes in. And uh, even if you think back to how the uh, Women's Tennis Association handled the Peng Shui situation, I, ho- I hope more uh, sport groups are willing to take some of those stands where they can and uh, draw a bit of a line in the sand. Say, you know what, the money is nice, but we need to stand for more. I agree. The last question. What is it that I have forgotten to ask you? <laughs> so, so here we are in this cart.ca podcast. You've covered a lot of territory. But what do you want to make sure that the cart.ca podcast listeners take away from this conversation? Uh, well, they should probably go to Prince Edward County for wine first off. All right. We could have Here's a live, your $10 bill. <laughs> a live, I think what I would just reiterate is that I'm a life Olympics, the Olympics and para whole life. So I declare that bias up front, but I will just say that I really believe in the good Olympics and Paralympics communities across the country, our country together at moments, and not just around our high-performance athletes. The values that Olympics and Paralympics espouse around their play, overcoming challenges, those are Canadian values. And so it may seem... Pollyannish or, or just, you know, silly, but I really do believe that the Olympics have a long-term future for, uh, as a media property that we can use if we choose to, to inspire young kids to dream big and to promote gender equity and the importance of sport. And that would be a whole other podcast around the importance that Canada should place on sport, not sport competitive high performance that's very important but sport as a core um, right of every canadian to be fit and healthy and help reduce health care costs over the long term and make sure that every child has access to sport and it doesn't just become an elite activity for those that can afford you know hockey or power skating and if you can't you just can't do it Um, I think personally we could use sport as a country much more effectively and I'd love to see our political leaders come out and just say we're going to be the fittest nation on the going to make sport free for every child under the age of 16 or something bold and instead of just you know throwing tiny bits at it really look at it as a long-term big institutional opportunity to change the fabric of our country for the good. I agree there too. So that's three for three. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the world. Heather Reisman once said that the world needs more Canada, but the world probably needs more things like sports that bring us together as opposed to pushing us apart. So I agree entirely, Chris. Well, we're at the end. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, Olympics were all about transcending 
cultural and political differences and bringing people together. But I guess we live in more complicated times, and maybe we will do that podcast down the road. That would be great to do. And I guess sports have been, I don't, maybe they've always been enmeshed in politics somehow. I, I don't know. I'm not a historian of, of Olympics. Regardless, Chris, thank you very, 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 very much. Chris Wilson, Executive Director, CBC Sports and Olympics. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your considerable experience and insights. And three for three, we're in agreement. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. This has been Bill Roberts for cart.ca. Until next time, cheers.